Today in the garage, we have Rebecca McConkie and Lindsay Board. Rebecca McConkie has been working in criminal law since her first law job as a summer student at Hicks Adams. She then articled at Adaria Law Group and clerked at the Superior Court in Toronto before returning to Adaria Law Group as an associate. After two years of practicing at ALG with some of the best lawyers around, she realized that she was never going to convince her family to move from Vancouver to Toronto and decided to move back to BC. She, in 2015, joined the team at Peck & Company Barristers in Vancouver and practiced there for several years, doing trials and appeals in a broad variety of criminal and quasi-criminal matters. In January of 2022, Rebecca opened her own firm, McConkie Criminal Law, where she is a sole practitioner. The bulk of her practice is criminal trials and appeals, but she acts on behalf of clients in regulatory compliance matters, prison law matters, civil forfeiture cases as well. Lindsay Board is a partner at Daniel Brown Law, and practices criminal and constitutional law. She regularly appears at all levels of court in Ontario and at the Supreme Court of Canada. Her practice focuses on complex, serious charges with significant reputational consequences for clients, with a particular focus on sexual offenses. Lindsay recently appeared before the Supreme Court as co-counsel for the Criminal Lawyers Association in the case of JJ and R versus AS, involving the challenge to the constitutionality of Bill C-51. Lindsay was an adjunct professor at Queen's University Faculty of Law for the winter 2022 term, teaching a seminar on advanced topics in criminal law. Lindsay is a frequent conference panelist re regarding criminal law issues, including a recent presentation to the Ontario Court of Justice judges for the National Judicial Institute in the fall of 2021. She also provides regular commentary to media outlets on cases of public importance. Whether you're driving your Subaru Impreza, shredding your Gibson, or drafting a leave application to the Supreme Court of Canada, step into the garage, listen to the experts, and get a tune-up. Rebecca, Lindsay, thank you very much for coming into the garage today. Thanks for inviting me. So, Thanks for having me, Rebecca. Thanks, Lindsay. So Lindsay, in, in her intro, discussed being involved in JJ and uh, at the Supreme Court of Canada. It's a hot topic. And Becca, that was your client. Am I right? JJ was, yes. And uh, tell us a little bit about how this case got to the Supreme Court. It was an unusual route to the Supreme Court in this case. It was an appeal that was brought by the Crown. And so... And it was actually brought by the Crown before JJ's trial had even occurred. So I came on as JJ's trial counsel and I continued on as his counsel before the Supreme Court of Canada. But at the time where I had just come onto the file as his trial counsel, a pre his previous lawyer had already conducted a constitutional challenge to the provisions that were ultimately upheld by the Supreme Court of Canada in the decision that was released a, a short time ago. And that was a decision that came in a pretrial matter. The judge ruled that certain aspects of the legislation were unconstitutional, violated Section 7. And so she struck down the notice period that required a pretrial application. The Crown wanted to appeal that decision. And so before JJ's jury trial even occurred, they filed an application for leave to appeal directly to the Supreme Court of Canada, skipping the provincial appellate courts in the process. Um, I took the position that the leave should not be granted. That was not persuasive. The Supreme Court of Canada granted leave. 
And this is all even prior to JJ's trial occurring. So we had the trial, JJ was acquitted. And so the, the Crown was correct in the sense that there wasn't gonna be an appeal by him, at least to the BC Court of Appeal. But then essentially it went up to the Supreme Court of Canada after that as, as the counsel for the respondent along with Megan Savard, who came onto the file before the Supreme Court of Canada, uh, we filed a cross appeal to allow the court to essentially address the entirety of the legislation and issue, which is what they did. And Lindsay, uh, you were obviously part of that appeal as well. Tell us your experience with that. Yeah, I was. So my involvement, um, well, I guess I was less involved than Rebecca was obviously when you're representing a party um, the involvement is quite significant. So I was representing the criminal lawyers and the association along with Gerald Chan and Daniel Brown and the three of us uh, were representing the CLA as an intervener. And so as Rebecca described, JJ ended up being granted leave uh, to the Supreme Court, both for the Crown's appeal and then for the Cross appeal. And so we applied on behalf of the CLA for intervener status in order to make written and oral submissions on behalf of the CLA to the Supreme Court um, in that case. And then as well, there was another case here in Ontario. Most people knew it as the Reddick decision decided by Justice Akhtar, but ultimately it ended up being styled as AS, which was um, uh, actually the complainant in the Reddick case. And sort of something unusual happened there where Justice Akhtar had held that the amendments were unconstitutional here in Ontario at the superior court level and the complainant, so AS in that case actually applied for leave directly to appeal to the Supreme Court of Canada. So much like Rebecca described, skipping the uh, provincial appellate court level. And so then ultimately AS's appeal got married up with the JJ appeal. So the full constitutionality of the Bill C-51 amendments was squarely before the Supreme Court for its adjudication. Before we get into the nuts and bolts of the JJ case and that area of law generally, for both of you, what's it like to have to prepare uh, an argument for the Supreme Court of Canada? I'll start with Becca because it was, I guess you 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 had a direct litigant. Yeah, it it's a, it's a whole different beast than most other appellate courts. And I say that as though I have a huge amount of experience. I don't. This is my first time representing a party before the Supreme Court of Canada. I had, you know, acted as junior counsel on interventions in the past, but never presented oral argument nor acted for a party before the Supreme Court of Canada. So it's different because there's a lot of policy that goes into it, especially in a case like this, where it's the constitutionality of legislation that's at issue and policy will always have a pretty significant role to play because, you know, at the very least policy is going to be how the government uh, choose, argues to uphold the legislation. And so kind of the, the broader implications of the legislation on not just JJ, but everybody that is subject to the legislation is what's in focus. The facts of JJ and you know the specifics of, of that case are really unimportant 
and didn't play almost any role in in the hearing of the appeal or, or ultimately in the judgment. And Lindsay, can you talk about your experience as working for the, the intervener in such a case? Yeah, definitely. So I, when you're acting for an intervener, it kind of gives you the opportunity to expand on a point that as a party, you might not necessarily spend a lot of time focusing on just because frankly, you don't have enough space in your FACM um, in order to do that, or you don't have enough time um, in oral argument. And so from a policy perspective, you can sort of pick one or two things that you think is important for your organization that you want to drive home. And you can use that opportunity to really dive into that issue. So for example, for JJ, one of the things that uh, the one of the points that the CLA was trying to make was that there should be um, sort of a categorical exclusion of electronic communications between an accused and a complainant in terms of uh, what uh, the definition of a record is. So if you have electronic communications, text messages, Instagram DMs, what, what have you, between the accused and the complainant, that just should never attract a reasonable expectation of privacy. And so that's one of the submissions that we made, and we got to spend a lot of time focusing on that argument and working it up. And perhaps um, that's not something that you, would ne you wouldn't necessarily make that um, pitch because it, it was sort of an alternative argument because it's assuming that um, the provisions were upheld as constitutional. So it was a bit of an alternative argument that you wouldn't necessarily be making as a party. And so that was sort of interesting to be able to do. So if we get into the case a little bit more deeply, I mean, it's a very long decision. We're not going to break it down in this form, obviously, but we we know that they were they upheld it as constitutional I think the real, some of the questions that are left is how do we approach a case now where, where we have some evidence or possibly evidence that might uh, engage the regime? Do we have any guidance on this? I'll start with uh, Lindsay on this point. I saw a tweet following JJ, um, something to the effect of if you're charged with sex assault, bring money. Oh yeah, that was, that was I don't know if it was Adam Weisberg who posted that, but I, I yeah. feel like it was. <laughs> it sounds like something Adam would. Yeah, I, I, I thought about that and I immediately uh, started calling my clients. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, like, it, the, he's not wrong if it was him or, or whoever it was. But I mean, it, one of the things um, that's so difficult after JJ is that there's a lot of unanswered questions. And whenever something isn't clear, as we all know, that means more litigation that means more preparation it means more days of court time and so I have clients calling me and saying Lindsay I don't understand how a single incident he said she said sexual assault allegation that lasted you know 10 minutes can cost me 10 days of court time with five or six days of pretrial motions and then several days for the trial proper, like how could that possibly be the case? And I really sympathize with them because it it's absurd when you lay it out like that. But the reality of the situation is if you really want to advocate on behalf of your clients, you have to take the opportunity to push the boundaries and the limits of some of the things that the Supreme Court set out. And so in order to do that, that takes time, that takes preparation, it takes days of court time to litigate, it takes days to go back and get rulings and so on. And so, um, yeah, that's that's the tough thing about all of this. 
I completely agree. And one of the most frustrating things about the majority decision is that I think every single litigant before the Supreme Court of Canada said, we need clarity on these things. And the majority decision brings zero clarity, except to the extent that it says that this is a constitutional regime. And what I mean by that is when I was trying to think of how I would, you know, tell clients, this is what this process has to look like. We've got, you know, text messages that have an inconsistent statement from what the complainant's police statement says. This is what we'll need to do in order to make sure that they're admissible. I actually don't know what that is. You know, what type of material constitutes a record? It's a case-by-case -case analysis. Uh, what about material provided in disclosure? It's a case-by-case -case analysis. What about material that the complainant intentionally sent to the accused? Well, that's a case-by-case -case analysis. Do complainants uh, get a copy of the notice or the contents of the records at stage one? Uh, that's unclear. Are complainants allowed to personally participate in the stage two hearing? That's also unclear. Often, not always. What's the scope of their submissions? Unclear. You know, what type of reference to the evidence triggers the regime? Because we know now that to adduce evidence does not just mean to actually tender that evidence in to the record as an exhibit. It can mean just mentioning it, but as by counsel, just mentioning it. What, but what type of mention is enough to trigger the regime? That's also unclear. And these things will become clear but they'll become clear in about 10 years once there's been hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, of accused person's money spent and a, a bunch of court time taken up, you know, arguing these very important, very complex issues that probably don't always have a clear answer, but I was hoping for some clarity one way or another. And I just don't think that we got that, unfortunately. The one thing that I experienced um, doing a case of this nature, obviously before JJ was decided by the Supreme Court, but with a very um, bright and academic judge, was in order to ultimately be successful to use the evidence that I wanted to use and how I wanted to use it, I had to really articulate for the judge, because it was a jury trial, how... I expected to use this evidence in a step-by-step -step basis, why all of it was important, not just portions of it, why some stuff that might not seem super relevant could be important. And effectively, what I had to do is play out for the judge, say, you know, in instance number one, for instance, I had, let's say, 10 points that I wanted to use. And she says, well, I can see why you want to use one and two, but why do you need three to 10? That's, you know, it's a, it's too much. And I said, well, if I, I might need three for this reason, I might need four for that reason. I need them in my toolbox in the event that depending on the answers to one and two, I may need to go to three and four and I may need to go to number seven. And so I'm, as I'm making these submissions, I'm getting more and more frustrated with this idea that I'm actually not only laying out my defense, which is the concern that we have by disclosing the defense, but also laying out how I intend specifically to use or possibly not use the evidence that I would like to resort to if I need to. 
just just and, be, sorry i was just gonna say and you're not only saying that to the judge you're you have to tell that to the person that you're going to cross-examine right before they've ever taken the stand and you know I, I understand that there are police statements and that complainants give police statements. They're not sworn statements, not in British Columbia, and they're often not that detailed. So the idea that, well, of course, you'll still be able to cross-examine the complainant, even though you've disclosed your entire approach to cross-examining the complainant, mm-hmm. uh, you can always look at the police statement. That's actually not a complete answer. And in many cases, Uh, It's not going to be any answer at all because it's not going to be sworn. It's not going to be detailed. And because of changes to the law, there's not even going to be an option for a preliminary inquiry. So that's the other thing that it's not even just having to lay it out to the judge. It's having to lay it out to the very person that can then take that information and intentionally or unintentionally change the testimony that they're going to give because they have this information now. If I can just add, Marco, so aside from the, I mean, flagrantly obvious trial fairness issues that both you and Rebecca have signaled there, in my view, one of the frustrating things about having to go through the process that you just described, it's also a, it's a trial efficiency issue too, right? Because how many times have you been in a situation where you have something in your possession and you just don't think you need it? It's not relevant to an issue, right? Because the complainant statement to the police isn't particularly detailed. You don't have a prior consistent statement. You have all these text messages. Sometimes you have hundreds or thousands of text messages. I mean, especially with young people, they're living their lives online and they're sending that they're in relationships for years and they're sending thousands and thousands of text messages. And so you're in a situation where you really have to think hard about your case, cull it down and say, well, what's, what could be relevant here? And what happens when you get to a situation where mid-trial suddenly something comes up that you didn't really anticipate and a piece of evidence is in your possession that suddenly becomes relevant? And so that's one of the issues with having to go through all of these pretrial disclosure um, applications because you don't, like the relevance of the evidence in the defense possession sometimes doesn't really crystallize until you've had the opportunity to suggest something to the complainant. And if you make a suggestion, sometimes they just agree and there's no impeachment. There's no sort of value to the evidence that you have and you can just move on and the trial continues smoothly. But of course that's not always the case. And so from a trial management perspective, there's just, I just also see a lot of problems with this regime in addition to the trial fairness issues. Well, that's- and, But what, what we do know, of course, is that mid-trial applications might be allowed. Might, maybe. But that's they right. might not be. Right. And in what circumstances <laughs> will they be? We it's don't unclear. know. It's <laughs> unclear. <laughs> well, it, look, Lindsay's example is the perfect example of what was occurring to me. And the next thing I was going to say is, in that experience was that I did have a, a, a brand new call with me assisting me with that case and particularly with this application. And so what I did to avoid what Lindsay's just said, which is a mid-trial application, is I put it all out there and I said to the judge, this is why I need all this these things for these reasons, for the potential, I don't know what she's going to say. If she says X, then I have this. If she says Y, then I have this. And what I learned from the lawyer that I was working with who would not been involved in that at the end of that application said to me, how could I ever make those submissions of how I would possibly use something? The only reason why you're able to do that is because you've been through 
this many trials, this many jury trials, you know how things play out. And so your, your submissions become more compelling to the judge because you're able to provide actual examples to the judge of how this might play out in front of a jury and why we want to use this, why I need this evidence. And I kept using the phrase, this is basically what I'm asking for are tools in my tool chest. Not that I need all, because then, you know, the counsel for the complainant was like, look, all the, you know, we can water this down into an agreed statement of fact. And I'm like, this is a jury trial. A jury trial, I, it's not just the facts, it's the complainant's, you know, reaction to the fact, to the, the cross-examination that's relevant. And so for young counsel out there, this is something that's going to be extremely difficult to, as Lindsay just pointed out, to articulate at an early stage whether or not any of this is relevant until it becomes relevant. And at which point you're going to be met with a lot of resistance. I can already foresee in a jury trial, you're going to be met with a lot of resistance sending a jury away for who knows how long to litigate this motion. Well, and as well, you know, I think that there's going to be an obvious problem in saying this evidence is relevant and probative because of something that the complainant might say. And, and that's what we have to do because we don't know what the complainant might say and because we're mandated by this legislation to bring a pretrial application. But arguably, that's a speculative probative basis, right? If they haven't said it yet, how do we know that they're going to say it? Well, we can't. We can't know because we have to do this all ahead of time. So if you're the judge, then you're, you're saying, well... I guess I'm going to have to assess admissibility based on the possibility that the complainant will say that. Should I say, no, I can't say that it's relevant at this point in time, bring it up again if the complainant does say that, but then that's a mid-trial application, which are discouraged and a jury trial, I'm going to have to send them away. So do I just say no, uh, because there's no basis at this point in the evidence to suggest that the complainant will say that, but then what do you do as counsel if they do? You have to reopen. So I don't think this is a problem just for defense counsel, just for accused people. I I think it's going to be a problem for the complainant because it makes uh, trials take so much longer and require so many more pretrial applications that now they are a part of. I think it's a problem for judges. I think it's a problem for Crown to figure out where they draw the line and figure out what's the proper use of resources and the public interest in prosecuting different types of cases. It's Sexual assault is a complex problem with complex solutions, but I don't think creating complex legislation that mandates complex pretrial applications is going to be the, the golden ticket out of it. I just don't think it's a solution to the pervasive problem of sexual violence in society. Lindsay? Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think one of the um, unfortunate and perhaps unintended consequence of this decision and just of Parliament's decision to legislate certain evidentiary issues in the way that they've chosen to do it here is that cases are going to be thrown out for delay. And Justice Daw here in Ontario just released um, an, an interesting decision just slightly before pre-JJ where he talks about that and he says, you know, look, Parliament has to be taken to have considered and sort of weighed and balanced the benefit of having the complainant be involved in 
these procedures and the benefit of having their voice heard with the possibility that this is going to drag things on for so long that it results in some cases being thrown out. And that I think is just an unfortunate reality here. And there's been some discussion, well, okay, well, maybe um, some of these cases will be a particularly complex case as the Supreme Court has defined it in Jordan. And in my view, I just don't think that's the case at all. Like the Supreme Court says that a, a typical murder case is not going to be considered particularly complex. And so if the average murder case is not complex, I don't know how the, like if this, it, this isn't a unique thing, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. This is every single sexual offense prosecution. So if it's and every, every single case, text message and every right? single text message. Yeah. It's... So like, how could that be unique such that it would fall under a particularly complex exception? And I just, I don't think that's realistic. And so yeah, that that's the world that we're going to be living in, unfortunately. And like my, or sorry, like uh, Rebecca said, that's just not that's not fair for anyone. It's not fair the, for the complainant. It's not in the interests of justice for these cases to be dragging on for years and years to the point that they're possibly going to be thrown out. Interestingly, I I just received an email from the Crown telling me that she doesn't believe that various messages that she intends to lead are going to be subject to the JJ uh, regime, the 270 regime. And I held my breath. I haven't responded yet, but, um, <laughs> you know, we'll, we'll have to, we'll have to um, think about that for a second. And that's, that's such a problem, Marco, because after Barton, it's clear that the trial judge is the one who makes these decisions. And I'm sure you guys, both of you are smiling at me right now. (laughs) Say the same thing. So having both litigated uh, JJ at the Supreme court and the, what was that experience like when you're actually in there? I mean, I watched it from far, so I kind of know what seemed to be able to assess how you guys felt maybe, but what was it like to be involved in that uh, Becca? I mean, it was by Zoom, so I'm sure that I would have a a different account if I was in person. Um, It was nerve-wracking, of course. Uh, It was extremely early because they proceeded on Ontario time, even though I'm in British Columbia. So I had to be at my office for the pre-hearing check-ins at like 5.30 in the morning. But, uh, you know, it was an interesting experience. I think I spoke for about 40 minutes and Megan, my co-counsel spoke for about 20 or, you know, 35 and 25, something like that. I felt as though the time went by in a snap. It went by so quickly. Um, It was a very active bench for us. I was anticipating that. And honestly, the, the thing that was most helpful to me was doing I had the opportunity to uh, use the Supreme Court Advocacy Institute and do a moot before doing the actual hearing. And I cannot express how helpful that was and how useful that was. I think they kind of offer it up to people who it's their first time or, or amongst their first time at the Supreme Court of Canada. And it was, you know, an excellent resource for preparing for the hearing itself, you know, got a lot of good questions, a lot of smart questions, good advice. Um, And so that was really, really helpful. So by the time it got to the hearing itself, I felt, you know, ready to go. And it's, you know, obviously 
I, I care a lot about this case. I care a lot about the issues and I was glad to have the time that I did. I felt like I could have kept on talking and kept on making submissions for hours, but that's of course never, never what we're allowed to do. Who asked you those questions in those, uh, in that moot? Who? Yeah. Uh, so there was a number of people uh, or a number of, there's three judges. One was former justice, John Laskin. Mm. Uh, one was Megan Stevens. I'm, I want to double check these names, but I'm pretty sure it was Megan Stevens. Who's uh, a very smart, uh, very talented advocate who often represents complainants in these types of matters. And so had a very helpful perspective. And then there was a defense counsel. I, at the moment, who it was is escaping me. But they get but your materials, they review it. And so they're, they, they're exactly. in. They, they get the factums for both sides. They review it. They come ready. You know, they asked tough questions. Uh, some, some of the questions were, you know, very similar to the questions we were asked by the actual court. Um, and I think they, they basically have a faculty of people with a lot of appellate experience and experience litigating before the Supreme Court of Canada or, you know, deciding cases. I think they've got some former SCC judges on the faculty for the Institute. And yeah, it was an incredible resource that um, really helped me feel prepared to you know, be able to put my, my best foot forward and put the position before the court clearly. How about you, Lindsay? That, that preparatory stage, what's it like being up there, you know? So my experience is a bit different than Rebecca, just because um, as some people might know, interveners get five minutes in order to make oral submissions uh, before the court of, sorry, before the uh, Supreme Court, which goes by in what feels like 30 seconds. And there's only one person who's allowed to speak. And so Gerald Chan made our submissions. He did a fantastic job. And so for me, I was kind of just sitting back and getting the benefit of being able to watch other phenomenal advocates in, in action. And so I got to watch Rebecca make her submissions. I saw I saw Megan, both of them were incredible and did a really remarkable job, um, especially when faced with a lot of really, really difficult questions from the bench. And so for me, I mean, it was a little bit less pressure because I got to sit back and enjoy the show. So I don't wanna call this a loss for both of you. But is it the worst loss you've ever? I would say a crushing it, it, loss. Yeah, it, it's a crushing <laughs> loss, like a complete and utter loss Love. on yeah. virtually every single point. Was it the worst? That's loss? how I would. That's that's the generous way that I would describe it. <laughs> Was it the worst loss of your careers? I've still got plenty of losses to come. So Up to date, to date, <laughs> to date. Honestly, I, I can, I don't know. I, I can't, it's, it's hard because this case is one where ultimately the ruling didn't impact my client, JJ. Like but it impacted Canada, in, right? Like, it, did you feel uh, yes. the weight of the criminal law on you when you were there? Oh God. And I also felt that weight when I was doing the trial, because I knew that these transcripts were going to go to all the you know, clerks that I would say the judges at the Supreme Court of Canada, I, I don't think that they would take the time to review the trial transcripts in this case, given that the facts were so irrelevant. But 
you know, I was, it was keenly in the back of my mind for the entire trial that this was also going to be a case that was going before the SCC. So certainly the, the pressure was very much on and it's hard to escape that as counsel, but, you know, I just basically locked myself in the boardroom and you kind of tune it out when you're actually making the submissions. Like it's incredibly high anxiety, at least for me, it is until you start talking. And then, you know, by that time, I knew the material so well. I knew all the cases that had applied this regime. I knew what my points were and how I wanted to make them. I, you know, I had, of course, like all these beautiful written submissions that I barely glanced at, you know, my, my speaking notes, but yeah, it's, so it's, it's a loss that I, I, I'm not going to forget if only because I'm going to be reminded of it every single sexual assault case that I do until this legislation is changed or, you know, something else happens, but it's, I think it was, I think it was a loss for um, anybody who's going to be accused of sexual assault. And I think it's also a loss of, for, for justice in Canada. I think that this is going to result in wrongful convictions and that's not good for anyone. I agree. And one of the things that I'm concerned about too, as a result of this decision. So, I mean, first, I, I think this is one of the worst decisions to come out of the Supreme Court in the last I don't know, 20 years. And the thing that I'm worried about is the possibility of defense disclosure creep. So if it's fine in this case, then when else is it going to be fine? When else is it going to be constitutionally compliant in the eyes of the Supreme Court for the defense to have to turn over material relevant evidence in its possession? What other types of cases? So if if not sexual offense cases, what about um, you know, domestic assault allegations? What about other types of offenses? What about other types of cases? And so that's one of the things that I'm concerned about as well. It's not just sexual offense cases, but what sort of precedent is this setting? What sort of, how are these principles going to be extended in other cases? It's, it's kind of a scary thought. Is it the type of loss that might motivate either of you to leave the practice of criminal defense? Liz, no. Go ahead, one, either one. <laughs> Not this, not this one. There are losses that do, (laughs) and I'm sure that we'll come to that. Go ahead. Um, Go ahead. Tell me a loss that might motivate you to leave. I think that the losses that motivate me to leave are are the cases where I have to explain to a client that I am unable to help them in the way that I know that they need to be helped. And that no matter what we do uh, together, me or my client, it's not going to change the outcome and something truly unjust is going to happen. And I've had, I've had those losses before so far. I'm still here. You know, I, I, I do recall recently, you know, while I was, I was driving out to a, a federal prison to visit with a client And I was feeling very grim about the state of the law in the world. It was shortly after the JJ decision came down. It was after a a few other frustrations and other kind of various things. And I was just thinking like, why am I doing this? You know, I, I am somebody who struggles with detaching myself emotionally from my cases. It's 
something that is a problem. Like I, I it's not a good thing. I, I very strongly am trying to work away from that because I know that that actually harms my ability to continue being an advocate is if I do internalize, you know, my client's experiences uh, or the difficulties or frustrations that I feel with the justice system, uh, you know, you can't take it too personally. Otherwise you're just going to burn out. And I recognize that. And I still take things very personally and, and I'm working on that, but, you know, so I was driving out to the prison and, and thinking like, is it time to, to call it? Like, is, is this time for me to, to turn this over to somebody who's better equipped to deal with these injustices and not let it overwhelm them? And then I sat in the prison with my client who is in a much worse situation than I am. And it reminded me why I continue to do the work. And by the time I left, you know, I was ready to fight another day. And that seems to be, that seems to be kind of the way that I get through this is reminding myself why I am doing this. And it is for the people who, who can't, I am in a privileged position. I can use that position of privilege to try to advocate to my best ability for people who can't do that themselves. And I'm going to keep doing that until I can't anymore. I think so far, we're still going. But. I think most, <laughs> most of us go through those, those moments as well. Lindsay. Yeah. I mean, I think in terms of the JJ stuff, I, I think I felt disappointed, but also reinvigorated and in the sense that I was thinking, okay, well, what next? This is an opportunity to be creative and to really sort of flex your advocacy skills, because if we're not going to do it, then no one else will. We need to be able to try and dissect this decision and apply it in the most favorable possible way for our clients. And if we don't do that, then like Rebecca said, there's going to be wrongful convictions and we're sort of the only thing that stands between an, a, an accusation and not something that actually playing out for a client. And so I feel that really acutely. Um, in terms of losses, I mean, I think that one of the things that I struggle with is explaining things to my clients when they just don't go the way that they're supposed to go. Like, I think most of my clients understand, you know, if we bring some sort of contested motion, you could win or lose. We're going to make our pitch. The crown's going to make their pitch. And then the judge is going to decide and they understand that they're going to get a decision and it might be a good decision for them. It might be a bad decision for them. Everyone understands that sort of just how uh, the process is supposed to work. But what I struggle with is just sort of the procedural irregularities that exist within our system that make no sense. So like I have a sexual offense case, for example, where we argued a constitutional challenge and we came back on the day that judgment was supposed to be rendered. And the judge said, um, I don't really actually know what we're, what I'm supposed to decide here today. So can we like, what's, what's happening <laughs> basically? Comforting, comforting. And I like, how do you explain that to a client? Right? Like, how do you tell them like, yeah, this is a thing that just happened in mm. your in your case. And I came from the civil bar as well, um, where I practiced for, for the first couple of years. And that's just not, <laughs> I think, something that would happen. And so I think for a lot of people, um, th that's really surprising. Or like what happens when you go 
um, when the law says you're supposed to get your bail hearing right away and you show up in court and the justice of the peace just says, oh, well, actually, we can't accommodate you today. The next time the court is available to accommodate you is, oh, uh, two weeks from now. That's ridiculous. So come back then and uh, we'll have your bail hearing. And so like, how do you like a client understands that they could be detained or they could be released. They get that. But how do you explain to a client, okay, well, just because of the way the court is functioning, which is poorly, we're not even going to have the opportunity to litigate this issue until two weeks down the road. And that's really frustrating. And it's those things that I find the most challenging. It's really, it's really frustrating. The, the bail issue is just, it's embarrassing. I'm sorry. It's just gone yeah, to the point of absurdity. You know, well, three days, same, four days. The same um, conversations are ones that I have to have in sexual assault cases or sexual offense cases where, you know, my client will say, well, but I've got a text message from her where she says the exact opposite thing. And I, you know, but won't, won't that prove it? Well, now I'll have to say, actually, that's presumptively inadmissible. You know, you can't, yeah. you can't even mention this to defend yourself. And, you know, I can, I will explain why. And that the explanation is not a great one in my view. It's, you know, and, and that also doesn't help perceptions of justice, you know, from not only my client, but everybody else that might be accused or might even know that this is the situation, like having to explain what we cannot say and these are all things that are not just like, well, she deserved it. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to have any problem telling a client. I'm not going to go up there and say right. what she, because what she was wearing, she deserved this. Not to say that my clients say that they, they generally, they generally don't. Right. But it, this is more stuff that's like, well, but she explicitly texted me about it and said that was fun last night or whatever, you know? Yeah, we're not yeah, we're it, not uh, turning to advanced twin myths every day. I, I don't Well, and that's that's the other thing that's so frustrating is like any defense lawyer knows that arguing those sorts of things is going to get you number 1, the judge or jury will hate your guts and rightly so. And you're going to lose. Like there's no way that a responsible defense counsel in this day and age tries to argue the twin myths. And with JJ, you know, I think Frank Adario and Matt Gorley put, wrote an op-ed about this. It's just basically saying, we get it. You don't trust us. You don't see defense counsel as officers of the court. You don't trust them to make an analysis of what's relevant or what's not. Um, or to not tender evidence that obscures the truth-seeking function of the trial. By dint of this legislation, you're presuming that that's what we're going to do. Because yeah, yeah. I think that that's felt very acutely when we see the Supreme Court confirming that the Crown has mm -hmm. no obligation to bring these records applications, even though post Barton, the court confirmed that they have the obligation to bring a Seaboyer application if they want to tender evidence of other sexual activity on the part of the complainant. And so the fact that they have this sort of parallel obligation in that context suggests really this isn't about privacy and dignity of a complainant at all. They can provide information to the police and then the Crown can do whatever they want with it. And it's true. It just suggests that, well, in the Crown, well, in the, uh, the hands of defense counsel, um, you know, we're, obviously we're up to something 
no good or, or yeah. something something shady or well, even more invidious which is that you know if this type of evidence is used in aid of a conviction that's fine right and we don't need any pre-clearing for it but if it might be used to try to cast doubt on the complainant's account yeah then it's we don't hear it. and exactly well, and how much is this concerning sorry. yeah it's very concerning because how much of this really came out of you know the gomeshi tr- trial and it, it's it, it makes me laugh because you know, I'm sure that if the complainant had all these text messages, Marie would have still figured out a way to cross-examine them. <laughs> you know what I'm trying to say? It's like, mm-hmm. it's all they're, they're saying, well, was what, it's unfair that they were surprised by having this evidence? Yes, that is what they're saying. But But you sent it. This is what I don't really understand. It's a surprise if, for instance, the accused hacked her phone and got stuff that she never expected him to have. But or it, about the diary in Shearing, right? right. That the accused yeah. was not meant to have, which is what was uh, purportedly uh, the, the, well, it was in fact the initiating reason for what eventually became this legislation, although it took, uh, you know, many, many years between the Shearing decision um, and then in the interim Gomeshi, and then this legislation was actually kind of followed through and brought into law so i yeah it's i think that 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 point of the surprise is one of the most concerning parts of the the majority's decision in jj which is to say that if a complainant is told in advance what they're going to be cross-examined about and the evidence that they're going to be confronted with that makes it more likely that they'll tell the truth. That's an abdication of the adversarial system. And, and it, if that's truly the case, you know, if that is in fact the way that we're starting to see cross-examin- cross-examination and the search for truth, then why aren't accused people told in advance what the allegations against them are before they're interrogated by the police? Why aren't um, they told in advance before they take the stand what the Crown was going to cross-examine them about. They're not, because in those circumstances where it's the accused who's subject to questioning, the cops and the Crown like the element of surprise because they think that that's going to help them get to the truth. And indeed, like the cops can lie to an accused person in an interrogation and the statements the accused person makes is admissible against them. You know, it's, it's this, it's a lack of clarity and a lack of consistency in terms of the approach and just more generally, you know, I don't, I don't know what evidence there is to suggest that a complainant in this specific type of case, a sexual offense case is so uniquely different than a witness in any other type of case that we can safely say that the idea of cross-examination without showing your hand uh, in advance is going to continue to be the norm in all other types of criminal cases. And if it isn't, you know, if we can take that big step back and say the adversarial system isn't working, uh, trials as we know them currently aren't working, then we have to be more creative and think bigger than just to say, okay, we're going to say that the accused doesn't get to do it. 
when they're confronting the most important witness in a case. Um, we have to apply that thinking equally and we have to think maybe it's time to change this system as a whole. You know, if, if the criminal court system isn't working for sexual offenses and frankly, I think it's not. In I, a I think, I don't ways. think very many people would disagree with that. Yeah. Then I think that the answer and the answer to the problem of sexual violence in society is not let's make it easier to convict people accused of it under our current system. It's to take a step back and say, is there a better way to be doing this? Because I don't think anybody involved in a criminal trial in involving a sexual offense likes the trial process. It is incredibly difficult for complainants and witnesses. And accused persons and lawyers. It is incredibly and difficult. And jurors. Exactly. Everybody. It is not. And it's, it's also very unsatisfying, right? Because, the, you know, of the burden of proof, it can be very unsatisfying for uh, the complainants. It can be very unsatisfying for the accused in many cases. You know, it's just not... I don't know. It doesn't seem like the fix. It doesn't seem like a good way of dealing with these very complex cases. And if that's the situation, I say the solution is not making it easier to convict people. The solution is radically rethinking how we want to deal with these cases and how we want to call accountability to this type of issue. Lindsay, in light of all of what Rebecca just said here, do you think we should be considering jury trials here in sex assault cases more than judge alone trials or is there a, does it matter? Is it a very fact specific situation going forward? I think it's still going to be a fact specific determination and frankly, a jurisdiction specific determination. There's some jurisdictions where I would be uh, very comfortable having a judge alone trial in the Ontario Court of Justice and other jurisdictions where perhaps that's uh, less so. But you just have to think about that there's so many factors that go into that decision. And one of which is frankly your client's resources. Because if you are going to be, you might, you might have to pick your battles. Are you going to spend the time and the money litigating a number of pretrial issues, knowing that that possibly could have an impact on the way your judge decides the case? Or do you want to pour that money into a trial that's going to take twice as much time because you're choosing to have a jury? And so I think it's still going to be a very case-specific determination that's driven, unfortunately, by practicalities that weren't necessarily a driving factor before. Having you both on this uh, podcast talking about JJ, we didn't know what we were going to get into, um, <laughs> how we were going to approach it. I think just this this frank discussion about um, our frustration with the unclarity of the ruling how are the the unknown of how it's going to play out all these variables has been very uh, helpful both to me and I'm sure to our listeners because these are all the things that we're going to be learning uh in the next uh, few months going forward in years to come and I think Becca said it's going to take 10 years to at least sort all this out so I think 
we're getting there. Before we go, I, I like to ask, I ask everybody, what, what lawyer do you feel privileged to have seen litigate before the end of the career? Or alternatively, what lawyer do you wish you had an opportunity to observe before they retired? I'll start with uh, Rebecca on this one. Okay, I need to preface my answer, though, by saying that I, I remember now the the three people for the Supreme Court Advocacy Institute. Sure. And they were John Laskin and Megan Stevens. And then the final person was Dirk Durstein, who is the person who I I would name in this. This is my answer to this question. And when I was when I was thinking back, when we were talking about this earlier, I was like, I'm pretty sure it was Dirk Durstein, but I can't remember at this point. Um, Dirk Durstein is the person who I feel very privileged to have seen in part because uh, I saw him at the right place and right time. So when I saw Dirk Durstein for the first time, it was when I was a clerk at the Superior Court in Toronto. And I was watching jury trials. I'd never seen a jury trial before. So I did a lot of court watching when I was there and I watched him close to a jury uh, in a case with a a number of other co-accused and his style just really stood out to me. He was, I don't know, a little bit more uh, casual, a little bit more personable and uh, a little bit funny you know, he really seemed to be genuine, to be himself, and uh, to also not be kind of like this old rigid style that I expected most lawyers to have, or especially when they're in front of a jury. He was just kind of, you know, speaking to the jury like a, a real person. And I really, really liked that. And it made me think that maybe I can do that too, because my style is not particularly uptight or formal. I, I kind of lean towards the informal. It's just who I am. And I always kind of worried about that and worried if it would be effective, but I found him really effective. And it kind of made me think like, oh, maybe I can be myself when I'm litigating and it'll be all right. So that's always watching that. That case was formative for me. Very few uh, lawyers have probably done as many trials as Dirk Durstein has. I just, his resume is incredible. And so I specifically recall, you know, when he did the Rafferty trial, um, he walked out of the courthouse. It was late at night and he gave up interview and just seamlessly transitioning English, French, answering questions so articulately it was i was just thinking to myself i wish i could do a press conference like that where you know he didn't fumble anything he just knew what he had to say he said it and he answered questions and um if anybody gets a chance to observe him uh you should get a chance to because he's always doing trials so if you see him at 361 or in brampton or wherever just have a few minutes to take a look at what he's doing in front of a jury because it's uh something to watch same question Lindsay. So you mentioned Marco earlier, um, Marie Hennon's effectiveness in the Gameshi trial, and, and she's my she's my answer. So uh, like Rebecca, when I was clerking, um, I had the opportunity to watch a lot of appeals. I, I was at the Court of Appeal at the time, and I watched Marie 
argue and appeal. And it wasn't anything particularly from what I remember. It wasn't, you know, what one of these big five judge panel jurisprudential appeals. It was just a, a from what I remember, I think it was just a sort of run of run of the mill sexual offense appeal. And she was just remarkable. Like she really just lived up to the hype. I think I've at that point I had seen a lot of lawyers argue appeals. And she just had this effectiveness that I think came from her ability to just concede what didn't matter and sort of block out the noise and zone in on the points that she really needed to make. So anything that wasn't absolutely critical to her argument, she just let it go. And then she really sort of doubled down on the things that did matter. And I think that did two things. So for one, I think it just gained her instant credibility with the court and the panel, because I think um, a tendency for junior counsel is you get really nervous about conceding things, right? You never want to let things go. Even in the initial trial stages, you're at a JPT, like, oh, am I, should I, should I concede ID? You know, it's just, there's a lot of nervousness that goes into making a concession, understandably, because you don't want to um, give up something on behalf of your client and you don't necessarily have the experience to understand whether that's appropriate or not at that point. And so watching someone at that high of a level before the court of appeal, just sort of conceding points, I thought was incredibly impressive. And it just lends itself really well to bolstering the remainder of the submissions. And I think it just makes you a more compelling advocate. So I thought, anyway, I, I learned a lot of lessons watching watching her deliver her submission. She was incredibly effective. Rebecca McConkie and Lindsay Board, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to come to the Law Garage and share your experience with our listeners. Continuing legal education can take various forms, and I believe that there's something to gain just from talking to our colleagues. Before we leave, is there anything either of you would like to plug? Rebecca? I do have something to plug and it's just a book that I've been reading uh, that gives me hope a little bit. So I thought I'd throw that out there in light of kind of the doom and gloom of uh, this episode. It's a book, it's called, (laughs) We Do This Till We Free Us, Abolitionist Organizing and Transforming Justice by Mariame Kaba. And it's in the form of short essays because I find after a long day at work, I rarely have the ability to concentrate on like a long novel, but she's an abolition, like prison abolitionist and police abolitionist and uh, an incredible writer that writes in a way that's very easy to understand and very compelling. And, you know, she sets out the injustices and she's, her focus is on the American criminal justice system, but it's a lot of what she writes about is very applicable to uh, Canada as well. And she, you know, use, uses her own experience and anecdotes and it's just a really great book. I recommend it. Great. Lindsay. My answer is not quite as inspiring. Um, (laughs) (laughs) there's this podcast that's been out for a little while called laudable and it reads Supreme court of Canada decisions out loud. 
And it's amazing. I've often wished that this existed and now it seems like it does. I often just don't have time to catch up on important decisions as they come out and it can be really difficult just to stay on top of things. And so criminal defense lawyers are usually doing a lot of driving. And so when I'm driving or when I'm folding laundry at home or doing whatever, I'll just listen to the Supreme Court of Canada decisions um, read out and it, it, it saves me a lot of time. That's that's a, also an interesting resource. That's great. Thanks, Lindsay. Thanks, guys. Thanks for coming out. Thanks so much. Thank for you. Thank you for listening to the Law Garage podcast. If you're new to the podcast, please check out our back catalog and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at The Law Garage. Our production crew includes executive producer Jason Cooper and associate producers Christina Dow, Remy Sansawal, and Matthew Takamatsu. The Law Garage is a J Mike podcast production. <laughs>